welcome to Media Roots Radio. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Barry Crimmins. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Legendary stand-up comic and activist, and uh, now the star of a documentary film called Call Me Lucky. Um, I recommend everybody check it out. Directed by the great Bobcat Goldthwait. First off, people should know that it hinges largely on the fact that I survived childhood rape and uh, am an activist in that area. I don't, it doesn't want to, you know, it's not, it's not a narrative film, it's a documentary, but just so that people, uh, you know, know. But it's also quite redemptive, you know, it's not maudlin, I don't think. No, and I, and I, I mean I I knew that going in because I had you know I had heard your interview on the the Opian Jim show and um, I uh-huh. I was still extremely affected by the movie. I mean it's like when I say I don't want to spoil anything. I mean it, knowing that um, going in, it's not it's not gonna lessen the impact because um, it's such an impactful story. And you know the the narr- the the way he uh, Bobcat put it together. I mean it, it's it's incredibly well done. Barry, the part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I'm a big comedy fan. I'm also a, a big lefty, um, you know, political junkie as well. And I was kind of struck by just how political and, you know, uh, and I hate using this word, but how radical some of your comedy was, not only compared to a lot of other comedy th- throughout the eras, but just even compared to today. Uh, it seems like most comedy is extremely removed from politics, at least the comedy I pay attention to. Or else it's tethered to electoral politics, which exactly. sort of yeah. keeps you color within the lines. Yeah, and that was almost a whole cottage industry in and of itself during the Bush years, you know, the 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 Daily Show and the Colbert Report and and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and it seems like... Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, I know those guys and I like them, but I, I don't watch that stuff because I need to keep my own palate cleansed, you know. So what, what, what is your feeling right now on, on the, just the state of the way comedy is in general and its engagement towards, you know, politics? uh, my, my act is in a really good place and I'm happy with it. And, you know, there's a lot of other people out there doing great stuff, but I'm not, you know, I'm like a ball player who doesn't read the box scores. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I've I've been in the comedy business for 43 years, and um, so that I just don't get you know the colic like in the old days. There used to be uh, when there was lead in the paint, the painters would paint for years, and then they open a can of paint one day and just start puking because the the lead accumulated in their system, and they were now you know so poisoned they couldn't be exposed to any more of it. That's kind of how I feel about comedy and electoral politics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just in good luck to everybody. But sometimes it's hard to be around the urgency and the desperation and the, you know, like, willingness to sell out um, in some cases. Uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't great people. And I mean, yeah, I have great friends that go see them anytime, you know, but... Uh, uh, mostly it's hard to be, I've, I've been around a lot of the newer generation and the situation is just so crappy for them. In New York, they're doing, 
you know, somebody said they think there's 35,000 people calling themselves comedians in New York City and they're in the boroughs, so, or, you know, in the surrounding area, the greater area. So uh, they do these open mic nights, they get two and a half minutes. Um, I can't clear my throat in two and a half minutes. You know, <laughs> I mean, so how do you put together more time doing that? Their acts have to sort of look like ransom notes after a point. What's, what's a capital T doing at the end of this work? <laughs> so, I have great sympathy for them, but I, I can't fix it. All I can say is that, you know, they stage time is the lifeblood of comedy, and if somebody doesn't have enough for you or isn't willing to give you some, then you better learn how to hustle some for yourself. So you think um, that that plays a role, just the oversaturation of how many comics working might play a role? In just Well, I mean, it certainly makes for a lot of kind of scab activity. You know, I mean, it, it really kind of skews the business. Like, if you want to be a... If you want to get in at Comedy Central or The Onion or something, you go and work for a few years as, a, as an intern for nothing. You know, and then they might throw you a scrap here and there as a sort of a stringer. But <clears throat> who the hell can afford to go live in New York City really long hours for nothing? Well, there's only one group, and that's people who ha already have some, you know, money behind them. And I think that when you understand that that's sort of becoming the vanguard of, uh, of, you know, modern comedy, it it's a bit disturbing because you realize the sensibilities are not going to be of the people so much. They're going to be of the concentrated wealth, one way or the other. Even if they pay some lip service to some things, these people, you know, they come from privilege, and uh, and so sure they're going to give a chance to some people to make sure they have enough. You know, so the world, so that it at least appears that they uh, are diverse and so on and so forth. But for the most part, it's rich kids who are, get to set the tone for comedy, and some of that becomes sort of that, and that's where this sort of snarky, unloving shit comes from. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, All right, that's at least my theory. Yeah, well, it's a, it could, you know, it's like a, it's a feedback loop of the of the culture, you know, or the wealth, the wealth gap getting, you yeah, know, they larger. come from an Ivy league school or Hampshire college somewhere, you know, some really expensive private school. And then they go and, you know, the parents buy them a loft in Brooklyn. And what, I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's not the kind of thing that would have been available to me. Yeah. And, and didn't it used to be the case where a lot of comedy writers like back in this, 70s and 80s, like for TV shows and stuff were mostly coming from Ivy League institutions and then it kind of sh shifted? Well, I don't know that it shifted, but I'm not paying that that close attention. I know that for quite a while it was, and some real funny people came out of there too. There's no denying it, but it's, but again, uh, you know, if your father's a brain surgeon and, you know, and your mother's a uh, you know, high-powered lawyer. You, you know, you get to, you know, you get to kind of fiddle around in the arts if they if they'll put up with it. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's it, again, as I say, it skews things. And, and and then on the on the lower rungs, it creates this insane 
desperation where like people feel like they're not going to get any sort of chance so that when they do they blow it just out of desperation you know like every they wait everything too much they don't there's no sort of no sort of like you know centered development there it's just you know like this is everything is a hail mary pass sorry if i go more than five minutes without making a sports uh, <laughs> analogy it's like overtime so <clears throat> no i've heard i've heard similar um i think it was bill burr who was mentioning how there's this there's this thing happening in comedy right now where younger comics are getting offered hour-long specials like way earlier in their careers than they used yeah. to be so now it's like a, a comedian who only has 20 minutes of good material has to basically blow and that's a version of what happened in my early days in comedy when the original sort of comedy boom came along and that was suddenly they opened a comedy club in every city in the country and there weren't enough headliners to go around but there were enough people who knew how to do an hour on stage of not so original you know pretty much push button stuff and that that eventually ruined it's it's before that no one would say oh i hate comedy there's people now who will say i hate comedy what they don't really hate comedy they hate this stuff that sort of plays to the professional wrestling demographic that happens in a lot of the corporate clubs around the around the country that developed back then where they developed this formula and you know you ha- and you i mean you got to follow a couple local hacks who really crotch it up and then and then you got to go on. You better have some sort of high-powered uh, button-pushing thing. And, and what would happen is if you did a smarter act, you got in trouble because you exceeded expectations. And that is, that is you're in just as much trouble for exceeding expectations as not meeting them. So it just created this, this situation where you developed an audience that would put up with that, an audience that liked it, an audience that sort of, needed stand-up that kind of came with a laugh track. Oh, it's airline peanuts. We laugh now. Oh, you know, it's fart jokes, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, they know how, they know how to get that. And, it, and if you challenge them too much, you didn't. So what happened was a lot of really good acts kind of got exiled from an industry they really helped make because originally it was the original and smart acts who really made things pop in places like Boston and New York and San Francisco and Houston and, and you know you name it, but but event but you know when you're getting to Dubuque and Indianapolis or wherever you know that now they just it was just a different game and there weren't enough smart acts to go around. So what would happen to me is I'd go in the first time when the clubs were new, and the word would get out a little bit, and some of the professors from the local college would come down, and some activists and different people, you know, kind of literate, smart crowd would come in, and they'd have a really good time. But then, because they had a good time, they would come back to this place, and they'd see some hack. Now they're not coming back anymore, and they're putting a bad buzz out among that sort of hip audience. So the next time I come back, what happens is the audience has deteriorated to the point and it's more of the professional wrestling demographic. And by the third trip in, it's just unworkable. You know, it's just so. After I toured with Jackson Brown in 88 and played the big 
houses of really smart people. I didn't. I just, even though I was still getting offered a lot of money to to play comedy rooms, I got out. And it turns out I got out while the getting was good because the whole thing began to crumble after that. It became a buyer's market, you know, because so many people by that point had seen us on TV, had seen it, wanted to do it, and would do anything to get out there. So that you know, so a lot of you know scabs screwed things up too. What you're saying is even in the the smarter cities, the places or just the places where there were rooms where they had smarter audiences or crowds are more into your comedy, even those rooms deteriorate well, over there time. Was a, there was some of that, but, yeah. you know, uh, but to some extent, you know, I mean, you get someone who comes in, has moved in from Indianapolis or or, you know, uh, you know, Shreveport uh, or wherever the hell it is, and they're kind of a hip person, they think of comedy as this schlock that was in a strip mall with this really predictable rhythm to the night. You know, and plus, like, the, just the whole way the thing is done on a national, nationally, the, the formula they've come up with, and you see this less in the in big cities, they'll have a really good person host the show, and that makes a big difference. But in these shows where there's an opener, a, a host, a middle, and a headliner, you, you know, the crowd is often ruined before the headliner gets on. The middle act is often the the most button pushing, denominator lowering, you know, person you can imagine. And then you want to go out and do something, and you got to deal with what they turn the audience into. And then many times they create, you know, they create this avenue for the audience to get in on it. And a lot of acts don't like that. It's not part of the fun. I wrote this act. It's my life's work. I want to see what my new material can do. That's what's interesting to me. And I want to see what I can do with this audience. Handling a heckler means nothing. But when you when you get somebody on in front of you who's picking people out of the crowd and dumping on them, you know, that, you know then the game is on. And so, again, this formula of this the host is the least experienced, and many chances, someone who's not ever going to go anywhere in the racket, and they come out and set the tone for the evening. Who starts their fifth-string quarterback, you know, to get the game going? You don't do that. You know, you put your best uh, on the field. In Boston, I used to have, if it was called the Barry Crimmins Show, guess who came out to welcome the people and got the show going? Barry Crimmins. <laughs> that's why? Well, I don't know. When I watched the Jack Benny show, he didn't come out at the 17-minute mark after the jugglers fumbled around for a while. And in that case, you also create a situation for those newer acts where someone has put the audience somewhere for them, and they can take it from there. Now, when you're doing a concert and you have someone smart opening for you and it's a big room, that's a different story, and it's fine to have to not you know, host the show. And it's even fine not to ho- it's it's fine. You can headline and close a show, but you really have to be careful about who else is out there because they really do damage audiences. The audiences need to be brought along. They need to be turned into audiences. And a lot of comics these days clearly don't even understand some of the basics. Now, there's a million great comics, so don't get me wrong. But there's a, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people doing national TV shots and they walk, they get introduced. This is a really funny guy. He's very, you know, let's bring him out here. 
the, the guy comes out and or the woman or the woman and the first thing they say is hi how you doing <laughs> you know it's not a joke they just said you're funny that's a platinum moment you walk on and you do this thing called take the stage and you confirm that you're funny. And the audience has a little tension at that point where they're going like, oh, is this guy, this is what we really paid for tonight. Here's the headline, you know, is this person or is she really funny? Is he really funny? And if you come out and kind of meander around, now it's not like you can't recover from that because I've watched them. I have great sets after that all the time. But you're wasting this time when you can really win them over and gain, you know, rapt attention. And now you really have something to work with. Yeah, no, I've I've been to plenty of comedy shows where the where the there seemed to be that moment where don't open with a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing? I mean, you want every three hundred people to tell you how they're doing individually? That's like you know, there's a famous pep talk. They have a tape of a Canute Rockney giving to the Notre Dame team. You know, Today's the day we're gonna win, and then we gotta win. Now, what do you say, boys? And they don't know what to say because there's no so they go Galibalaba. You know, because you hear, you know, 50 guys saying different things. Well, it's the same when you, how are you tonight? Well, everybody's <laughs> a little different. And you're kind of making them think about how they are. They're not thinking about focusing on the stage and whatever it is you, you intend to lead them to. Yeah. It, this is the little comedy chalkboard session. Yeah. You, you, I mean, besides these, these more difficult, just the more difficult audience landscape I mean, some of the times I've watched you you doing stand-up, I mean, you're saying things about, you know, the Christian right and and presidents and, you know, authority figures, basically. That... Yeah, you know, I, I don't, but I want to stop there because a lot of comics do that Christian right stuff. I, I mean, I'll get them now and then, but uh, when they're really asking for it, but. Generally, I'm playing in a nightclub and people are drinking whiskey. Like, how big, how tough a target is the Christian right to go after there? You know, so I... Well, I mean, mean, nowadays, yeah, but I I guess back then it's, I mean, it seemed, it seemed like it was a lot less people doing it. Um, Well, I mean, you know, who didn't know, you know, uh, Pat Robertson was an asshole, you know? Yeah, well, that's that's a fair point. (laughs) And the same thing, and, and it still goes on to this day, like... Did you hear what Rush Limbaugh said today? No, I'm not an idiot. What do you think? I'm attuned to what Rush Limbaugh said. He established himself as a piece of shit a million years ago. And, you know, I don't like the odor, so I avoid it. And by the way, if I'm talking about what he's sending up a distraction about, I'm not talking about something that we need to discuss. No, I totally, you know? totally understand. But did you ever feel, I mean, was there ever any moment where you're doing stand-up where, where you felt like you were physically threatened or that like anyone, you know, any, heck, yes. any hecklers got to the point where they got so offended by the, I guess the political or religious things you were saying. Well, you know, I mean, generally when you're physically threatened, it's by someone who's completely irrational and it's not there, you know, it's almost a Rorschach test. They just draw <laughs> something that they, you know, something that's overwhelming to them. That doesn't have any much to do with what you say. The few, the couple times I've had someone, physically assault me on the stage. That was the case both times. Uh, by the second time, I had become a pacifist, and I let the guy hit me. And that's why, you know, that's why I was really, I thought of my friend Utah Phillips, who was a pacifist, the late Utah Phillips, and he said, never 
is your pacifism tested so much when is, is when you're being hit by someone who you know you could destroy. <laughs> you know? uh, and that was the case. Uh, first off, you're on the stage, you, you can defend yourself. I mean, the first you young kids in showbiz out there, you know, uh, someone comes approach you on the stage, you get a mic stand in your hand, and you just lift it slightly and flick it. The audience won't even notice. Hit the guy in the shins, <laughs> and he goes down howling. <laughs> and uh, you bought yourself a little time and space. And I knew that trick when I let the guy hit me, and I didn't do it. Did he actually walk up onto the stage? or was Yeah, it... twice it's happened to me, yeah. And and in generally in those situations, like in like in that last situation, did the does the security um, intervene and throw the guy out? Or it's not the first time was a night when in Boston and all the comics were at an anniversary show for another club. I let them all go, and I did a long set so everybody could go to the party. So I just was there defenseless. It was sort of an ad hoc group of audience members helped escort the man out of the building after he had been hit in the shin with a mic stand. <laughs> but, uh, and the other time, uh, the guy who owned the place, you know, grabbed the guy and, you know, got him out of there. And again, another guy who I could have killed, but, you know, I'm not a killer. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of killers, um, just changing gears here a bit, uh, you, you've said about Reagan, or, or I guess I should say you, you did an impression of Reagan where in his voice he said, I will not negotiate with terrorists. Oh, Either they I will take not the negotiate with terrorists. Either they take the weapons or they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a... Tear down that wall. I want to visit the rest of the SS group. <laughs> now, now I have Reagan... Reagan calling me from hell. Boy, did I ever have it wrong. <laughs> it's what, what's surreal to me and now. He's filleting the, the Waffen SS for eternity. Thank God Nancy taught me that little trick with Frank Sinatra's scrotum. So. <laughs> Viciously. I was, uh, I was born in 1981, so I'm. You know, I my memory of it is hazy. However, I was worried about you from the start. There's kids being born right now. All they'll ever know was now I'm talking to one of them. You know, <laughs> so I I can't help but get the feeling that we are experiencing a lot of parallels to the Reagan era in certain ways. Well, right the Reagan now. era never ended. Yeah, it never ended. That shit never ended. And the, and the big linchpin that kept it going was the Clinton administration, whose big lefty reform was of poor people. Yeah. You know, as my friend Kevin Rooney said, as if the big problem with this country is poor people are hoarding all the money. So, you know, ultra-militarism, nationalism, phony, you know, just, just this phony, you know... Uh, sainthood for your own country. I mean, like this country, we start this country was a miracle. It's the bastion of democracy. And you look at it, it's like women couldn't vote. We had slavery. We were, we were committing genocide against the indigenous people. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know how we can possibly live up to the standards that were set. But that comes back around to this election shit where we're always talking about, you know, well, we need better leaders. Well, first off, I don't need a leader, okay? I, I, I'm not on a field trip. 
I don't, I don't need, I don't need, you know, I know how to get to the museum on my own and want to go on my own. I like music, you know, so I don't need a leader. I, you know, I need a, I need elected officials, public servants who are responsive to an informed electorate, but you may say I'm a dreamer. But anyway, the idea, when we just get hung up on these elections all the time, and we're just implying we're, we're we're letting everyone know that we still buy into the origin myth of this nation that we have it perfect. We just need the right people to run it. Whereas you know, there, there were right from the start, it wouldn't have been a bill of rights if there wasn't a need to amend some stuff. So uh, there was granted it was amended in the wrong direction, you know, when they, you know, they did the second amendment as a bone to the slave state so that they could send their militias out to hunt down runaways. So, you know, these second amendment people, I just want to remind them that their guns are just as American as slavery. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the system needs wholesale repair, if not replacement, you know, it's just, too gone. It serves the wealthy, you know. If we get into oligarchy and and you know and 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 you know fascism at times, and like really friendly with corporations, and you know like uh, and, and as and as our privacy is more and more compromised, the privacy of those who are inflicting these human rights offenses upon us become stronger and stronger. And in fact, you can get in big trouble if you try to look into anything they're doing. So. You know, we have a lot of things to repair in this country, and I have yet to see an election, you know, that does it, at least on a national level. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to spend my whole life in servitude to the Democratic Party, because, you know, they're great. They'll do anything they can for us just so long as there isn't an election within two years. And then, well, you have to understand, election night, you'll say, well, we can get going on that. Well, we got that, you know, we got an election to worry about in two, just two years. You know, the, the, you know, they'll do something for the progressive agenda just as soon as there is an election within two years, and there always is. And at this point, the election cycle has grown to even last longer. So now it's like there's yeah. never there's never going to be a time in the future when there's not an it, independent uh, election. Uh, uh, Almost everything that happens politically is sort of at least someone's thinking in terms of elections on some level rather than on service on what's best. You know, a, a real leader will tell people things they need to know. They, you know, like people need to know that the, if you're worried about the environment, but you're walking around, you know, being, you know, uh, wrapping yourself in the flag and camo, that nothing does more damage to the environment than militaries. You know, nothing. You know, they're talking about they're, they're greening the Pentagon fleet now. That's what they said because you know we're using too much oil in our wars for we're too, using too much foreign oil in our wars for foreign oil. <laughs> so it's, just, it's yeah, it's, it becomes kind of a circular clusterfuck. Um, yeah, but but did you when you were talking about Reagan so much back when he was still in office? Did you have any idea how that he would be one of the most deified presidents? you know, in 30 years, like, well, know. I didn't think in terms of that, but I knew how deified he was getting at the time. And I mean, he, he just, you know, they just seized on this thing. Carter, who I had my problems with, particularly on Central America, he should have stood up for the Sandinistas and the popular revolution in Nicaragua. Um, 
and put the clamps on stuff the CIA was pulling down there and so on. But still, he he was a good enough leader to warn people about what was happening with, with energy and, and a couple other things. And, and uh, he was painted, oh, this gloomy Gus. I have yeah. to think, and, you know, and it's morning in America. Everything, well, now there's a you in the word, you know, because it's now a lot of stuff that we should have been working on even before Carter was around has been forestalled forever because to point out things that are difficult and unpleasant and challenging is to be un-American. And, and so we're supposed to censor ourselves, which is where all this, and that's what they do by calling every soldier a hero. And then they tell the soldier, well, you're heroes. Well, what do we always say about military guys, guys who fought World War II? Well, those guys, they were all heroes, but they never talked about it. So you put those things together and you're a modern soldier and you get called a hero. You also hero, never talk about it. So it, it shuts people up. And if you challenge the bad policies that sent these kids to these play, places where they shouldn't have been, then they turn it around to this guy's attacking our heroes. No, you're using these kids as human shields for the bad policies that either ruined or cost them their lives or watched their, watch their friends die or get maimed and watch them participate in horrors that you don't talk about. And so uh, it's, you know, it all ties together. I mean, it's obviously a really sad uh, landscape to imagine how many veterans um, we haven't even really seen, you know, the effects of the, we've well, seen I some of them, night. but you know, there's there's so many veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq that we haven't even begun to see. You know, well, the, I mean, the, here's the thing: now they come back and then they get sent back. We have no idea what's going to happen, or what the effect is on this generation of soldiers who not only had to go to war but had to take a lap in and out of war. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, there is a the long term effect of that. I have, you know, I have no idea. Uh, nobody does, and they don't even want to think about it. But it's like, imagine, oh, I made it. Oh, I'm going back. Oh, I made it. Oh, I'm going back. And their families and so on and so forth. And the shock waves go out forever. But, you know, the reason you don't start a war is because wars never end. You know, they the effect of uh, every war is still on us in some way. Because, you know, I mean, if you don't have to go to war yourself, you deal with the father or a brother or someone who went to war. Or you or you marry someone who, who went to war. And, I mean, and, and, you know, the shockwaves just go on forever. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's something, if you're ever even to think about going to war, you have to you know, really, you better have a pretty good reason. When people say to me, well, what about World War II? You're a pacifist. What were you done about World War II? I wouldn't have started World War I. How about that? <laughs> you know, I don't get that upset. You know, I, I've only heard of one Archduke in my life, and I didn't think he was worth setting the world on fire for. <laughs> so so the flip side of this, the idea of these ripple effects and shockwaves that come from serving military and what effect it has on their families and... And their loved yeah. ones, what you know, the inverse of that, the ripple effects and the uh, that come from like every drone strike we make. Sure, no, no, that's exactly it, and that's the next part of it. 
that you know we you know we uh, uh, we never or very rarely consider the imp- I mean you know you know our our response to nine eleven. Which, uh, like, let's just stop there for a minute, because there's just such lying involved immediately with that. You know, I mean, if you really wanted to figure out what happened, if you really wanted to, uh, or begin to just sort it out, like, what were these people thinking about? You know, you look at it and you interpret, you know, well, were they sending some kind of message? And, and, and the party line at that point was, no, they were insane. No sense at all can be made of what they did. They hit the fucking World Trade Center and the Pentagon. They hit the money and the muscle. Hemingway couldn't have written a more concise telegram. But we have to pretend. But if you get that and notice it, suddenly you're pro-terrorist. Yeah. You know, and then the next thing is you're pro-terrorist if you point out that it's terrorism to bomb a building with a sleek new you know, bomber or hit it with missiles from afar. Just the same as it's terrorism to freak out and, and, and you know, or to, to roll up a, a rusty Chrysler DeSoto and blow a building up with it. It's all terrorism. Anything that affects, anything that inflicts, you know, serious fear for their lives on people is terrorizing them. It's terrorism when somebody rapes a little kid and then says, if you say anything about this, your parents are going to, you're going to be taken away from your parents or I'm going to do the same thing to your little brothers and sisters or whatever. It's terrorism if you're in your office and some guy comes in with a gun and starts shooting everybody, whether he's a Muslim or whether he's from the fucking Tea Party or whatever it is, it's terrorism because people are terrorized. You know, it's, it's, and, 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 you know, and it's wrong to terrorize anybody and it's wrong to harm innocent people. I think it's wrong to, I think it's wrong to kill guilty people, but you know, that's me. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to be a killer. I was born without blood on my hands and I intend to keep it that way. So this concept of the, of the war on terror, basically a war against a tactic, you know, in its most literal form, how, how does it, I mean, the more more cynical part of me, you know, always goes back to the idea that, you know, it almost seems like some of the people who are waging this war on terror know, at least in a Machiavellian way, that this is going to continue more terror. By It's vague and they can get away with a lot of shit and they can make a lot of money from it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it makes me, you know, you have to wonder how many of these people are actually aware of the perpe- that they're perpetuating this war that they're claiming to be fighting. Um, well, uh, I mean, I think on the surface, most people, you know, you can't fool anybody till you fool yourself. So they delude themselves in large part. Fooled by their own but propaganda. If they stop and sit, but if they stop and sit still for a few months, they know they're full of shit. Yeah, that brings, I mean, that brings up the concept of, of you know, our own leaders being deluded by their own propaganda. And at a certain point, it almost becomes like a snake eating its own tail. You know, I mean, these people say shit to me like, I question something and they immediately go into, you know, you couldn't say that if people weren't over in Afghanistan fighting for your freedom. Hey, listen, pal, if I'm dumb enough to leave my freedom lying around in fucking Afghanistan, I belong in shackles, okay? (laughs) My freedom is here, and the way I protect my freedom is by using it here, by doing things like standing in public and saying, do not send those kids over into this fucking quagmire. 
Yeah. I think it was Chomsky who recently was asked, um, what do you think about when we bomb, when we're trying to bomb the Taliban and we bomb hospitals? And his answer was, um, you know, why are we even bombing the Taliban in the first yeah. place? Uh, how yeah. is that? How is that morally right? That's not like this. It's not like they attacked us. I mean, in fact, yeah. uh, they, you know, they, we claim they, they harbored Al Qaeda, but that's, that's the reason why we waged a war against a, another country. I mean, even just the Afghanistan war is rarely questioned. People only go as far back as the Iraq war. I was done with any hope for Obama when on the campaign trail, he came out and called it the good war. He literally used the phrase, the good war. Yeah. <laughs> Iraq was the dumb I mean, war and uh, Afghanistan yeah, was the yeah, good this one. Is good. But, you know, these always have to show they, they get, get us in all sorts of military trouble because, you know, they're afraid of, of not being, you know, manly enough patriarchal enough. They're afraid what the patriarchy will say about them, you know, because they can't, they can't think in terms, you know, they're not as paranoid as us. And, and of course, the whole theater of the whole thing is, you know, you have these insane Republicans out there, and then you're in this either-or system. And so, you know, it's, it's always with us or against us. It's never some nuanced thing. Well, how about I'm not with any of you, you know? Yeah, you know, during during the first call, the beginning, you know, you were a child, but when that first golf war started, I'm watching. It's in the early days of MSNBC, and they, I think it was MSNBC, but it, if it wasn't on MSNBC, it was NBC. But they uh, they put they put on uh, this general to talk about how we should invade Iraq, and he talks for a while. And then the host says, but in fairness, we need another point of view on this. And they bring on an admiral. <laughs> and he talks, you know. So the debate is how we should attack them, not if. Yeah. But it seems like we're seeing a debate. And that sort of, that sort of applies to our whole, I mean, uh, this idea that there's just not enough bipartisan stuff in Washington. 90% of the shit goes through that Congress so fast, no one raises a glove. And most of it is shit that if we thought about it is doing us no good and is a waste of our resources, a waste of lives, you know, and, and it does nothing. And what it does generally is, is threaten and ruin lives or just enrich the people who need no enrichment at all. And, and, and nobody says anything about it because we don't have a third party because corporations don't want to write a third check. So, you know, I mean, it's not it's not the disagreement in Congress that are really the problem. It's the agreement. It's, it's how often, how much stuff were these corporations just, it's just easy to buy in a two party system. It's just simple to buy the table or buy enough of it. And then somebody from one district where the people really are up in arms about an issue that that person gets to stand against something for once. But generally, you know, but, 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 you know, there'll be 19 other issues where that person it just votes with the great dull bulk of the Congress and somebody else, you know, gets to take issue with it. But it's, you, you know, you never have a real chance of winning. Yeah. And, and what you mentioned about how when they have these quote unquote debates, it's about how, it's it's how to wage the war, not if we should wage it or not. And that's kind of it reminds me a lot of what's happening with with our Syria discussion right now, which has been going on yeah. for almost two years, which. Yeah. 
it's never about, well, obviously we shouldn't overthrow another, you know, Middle Eastern regime versus yeah. we should. It's all about, well, how should we do this? You know, should we send in rebels? Should we right. airstrike right. ISIS? And it's just, it gets so convoluted that it's... Now we have two regimes to, to overthrow. Exactly. We have Assad and we have ISIS. And by the way, the underlying thing is the one thing we need to do is to flood the region with more arms. Well... <laughs> Who do you think armed ISIS in the first place? Just stop it. I mean, yeah, we need more uh, vehicles. They all have Toyotas somehow driving around yeah. and there. And it's it's kind of it's just surreal to me. I mean, the reason I brought up the 80s earlier is because we're here now essentially in two different potential proxy wars with Russia. And we're not even yeah. in, a, in a Cold War scenario. And Russia's not even communist anymore. And it's it just... It just no, seems... no. Russia's Russia's uh, experiencing the benefits of uh, capitalism, un, uh, unfettered, you know, oligarchy and corruption. Yeah, it's yeah. so. I guess it just it scares me. You know, I I mean, I I was uh, very young, obviously in the eighties, but as someone, yeah, well, you're who... yeah, I mean, you're born in nineteen eighty one. You got a ways to go, pal. All I can say is, I tried. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> So as as you see this scenario forming, I mean, do you is it at a certain point you just shut your 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 mind off, or do you are you are you not as scared as I am about what situation or approaching? How well, do you, I mean, you know, I've been through it. Um, it just never ends. I've never been through it because it never ends. So, you know, I'll try. And in the early days, I speak out, and then it just is so far gone that all I can do is. Just look for people who end up getting victimized by the stupidity and, and try and get their testimony and try, or, or try and put forward what they say, which is why, you know, which is why I have so many friends in Iraq vets against the war and so on and so forth, you know, because it's their testimony that, that, you know, gives us the best chance. That's what we were doing at Camp Casey with Cindy. You know, that was a bunch of people who were directly affected by that madness asking for some answers yeah and, and uh you know that was really disrespectful how dare you you know you come to a you know a public well i mean it's not like he was elected or he was like a court appointed president anyway if you can't elect a president one will be appointed for you man i, I remember when that was that was getting a lot of media attention when it was uh when camp casey was going it and then there was a certain yeah. point where they it seemed like the media hoisted up Cindy, and then it was like they wanted to destroy her. You know, well, like, sure, kind of like sure, Helen but, Thomas. But in the meantime, but I, I think people. I mean, we have to celebrate our victories, yeah. and that was a huge victory because that that backed Bush up to a ravine, a, a dirt-covered ravine, and then it started raining. And you know what the rain was? Katrina. A lot of people forget that it was Cindy who pushed him back to the edge of that cliff. He went off in Katrina. The guy was never the same there, but he was defensive. He was screwed up, and he looked like the coward, you know, that he is uh, because of what happened at Camp Casey, and that's what brought him into Katrina, and you know, and all his blundering there, and that. Was, and after that, he really never got a toehold again with the nation. Cindy always still has things to say and she's available. And those of us, you know, uh, who know that still listen to her podcast and pay attention to her public pronouncements and, and, and trust her. Um, 
Of course they, you know, I mean, but I mean, the, the crap they attacked her with was patriarchal nonsense, like, who's this woman thinks she, what does she know about war? And, you know, I mean, and that's always, that, that's the original, another one of the original lies. Like, we talk about, oh, how, this idea that it's progressive to put women in combat, or, or gays in combat, it was like, I was happy that there was a couple groups that were exempted from it for a while, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's it's like now seeing women comics who do really crotchy, stupid, you know, sort of frat boy pleasing acts and acting as if that's some sort of a great moment for feminism. You know, I mean, it's I mean, I wouldn't I'm not going to restrict what anyone has to say, but you can, you're not going to tell me that you're not serving the same master. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you about the small victories part. I, I, it's, it's hard to remember that each time you know something like that happens, it, it definitely has a huge impact, and then you just get daunted by how much crap you know is coming your way. But there's that after many that. people. There's, there, uh, but I'll tell you what: there's a lot of people who became active because of Camp Casey who are still active. Yeah. Who are still the core people there are still active and you see them and they have been, they do, you know, pull things off and have victories and, and we're around to help out the Occupy people or, you know, whatever it was. So, I mean, you know, the, the resistance built, you know, it, it can become more dormant at times, at times when it's just like, you know, uh, what Twain talks about in the war prayer where, you know, you just, it gets to the point where the few who spoke up know enough to, you know, just sort of keep their heads down for a little while. But it doesn't mean what they said wasn't right in the first place, and it doesn't mean they've forgotten what the truth is. Resistance and and uh, dissent seem to ebb and flow, and, and so does fascism. You know, it tends to be looked at as a hyperbolic word, to describe what's happening. Thing, the thing with fascism is, I mean, you know, there's Nazism and then there's fascism. Fascism is still around. You know, the Nazis are gone, and and the you know the, but but you know they're still and it's still around and it still certainly employs bigotry on a regular basis. But the you know the rabid you know anti-Semitism that was part of fascism is a a different story, you know, that's, I mean, thank God they're gone, but, but, you know, this, you know, the government just sort of clearing the way for enormous corporations to do whatever they want, and, and, you know, and they're, and there's just corruption, I mean, the money flows back and forth, it just stays at the top, and sort of gets, you know, doled out there, and it just doesn't really get to the, you know, to the people who need it. I was I was trying my hardest not to bring up Donald Trump, but I have to. Well, he's the voice of. I'll tell you my simple thing. I mean, he really, to me, is a is proof how many untreated victims of abuse there are in this country. If you could get an accurate poll of people who actually vote for that guy, you, you that's a pretty that would coincide pretty closely with how many self-loathing victims of abuse there are in this country. Uh, his campaign slogan might as well be, hate yourself, so does Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's, and I mean, he's just a dope. I mean, he's a, 
he's a dope. He's a, he, he, you know, he's a D's and doughs guy with the emphasis on the dough. He's got a lot of dough, but he doesn't have any class. He's not smart. You know, he's, 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 he's just, you know, soulless and will do anything. And he's a kitchen sink thrower. And, and like any abusive person, he's not, he's, He's never done anything wrong, and you come at him at all, and suddenly you got the biggest whining victim in the world, even though he's always complaining about whining victims. And that, that plays so many other places as well. That's just so typical. It's ridiculous. So you'd like to think that no matter what, you know, in, this, in the party of the absolute nuts, he's going to have a lot of people to speak to, and then pass that what's what. But then now all of a sudden, now if I start worrying about that, and I, I, you know, in the end, what am I worrying about? Getting Hillary Clinton elected president? You know, I just, she's, I'm, you know, she couldn't be a bigger part of the patriarchy if she tried. I, I'm, I would love for there to be a, you know, a, a progressive woman president. But, you know, she's, you know, just judging by her record, you know, the pictures of her with her dear friend Henry Kissinger and so on. Yeah. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, you know, I'm not going to sit around and panic about whether or not she's elected president. I'm going to, I'm going to work on a, you know, a grassroots level. I'm going to respond to, you know, abuse victims and survivors who seem call me lucky, who need a, maybe a little guidance or a little help. I'm, I'm going to, you know, talk to people like you who are kind of exploring things in a little more depth. I'm going to make my act about something that's more than this, you know, theater of, uh, you know, American electoral politics, which just generally the implication that there's so much on the line. And, you know, the thing is, no matter what happens, the six will remain in until we get pissed off enough to really change things. Uh, I'm into that. Yeah, I guess what what Donald Trump revealed for me wasn't even it's like him becoming president seems un, totally unrealistic to me, but it, when he suggested banning Muslim immigrants and so many people seem to support it and he's still polling so high, it kind of it it really hit me. You know, it frightened me. That's the thing Obama I give him the most credit for. He has he has emboldened a lot of people to take the hood off, and we know a lot more people. We know a lot. We know a lot more who the real hardcore racists in this country are because of him. That's his greatest accomplishment, as far as I can tell. But it's the same thing, you know. I mean, there's a, you know, that there is a really fearful, uh, you know, uh, not very intellectually developed group of people in this country, a lot of them, and they're everywhere, who, you know, who respond to the, you know, the dog whistles of, of bigotry and, and fear and hatred. And, uh, you know, we should be more concerned. That That's what we should be concerned about when some asshole like Trump comes along. What he's tapping know, into. Pushing that, you know, let's build that, you know, they're still trying to build that wall. <laughs> yeah. And I keep saying, please build the wall because I know the next year, I'll do, the next time there's an Olympics, I'll bet everything I have on the Mexican pole vaulting team. You know, <laughs> just, just shut. Oh, but by the way, you know, and by the way, they're leaving the country in droves anyway. That's how bad things are. 
you know. But the, the thing that's also one of the big lies is that these people are, uh, you know, why are they coming here if this country isn't so great? Well, because their country's even worse because of our foreign policy and who we support and who we prop up all over the world. A lot of these people are literally fleeing our own policies, and so they're coming here. Speaking of uh, Henry Kissinger, what, I've noticed a strange shift where it seems like as ne- as actual neocons get more hyperbolic and just more crazy in their own rhetoric, is Henry Kissinger seems to be almost accepted, like you were saying, like Clinton, um, accepted among more neoliberal uh, yeah. type well, people. Yeah, you know, there you go. I mean, and that's... But that's the shifting. I mean, things are going... This country is so far to the right right now, I'm pretty sure they're going to hold the uh, New Hampshire primary in the Atlantic Ocean, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just so far to the right. And that's what happens when there's no when there's no left it would, that with any sort of representation. You know, the reform we need is, to, it, it, is something that gets something in there. Believe me, if there was no left in these countries all over the world that have single-payer health care, there wouldn't be single-payer health care anywhere. Yeah. You know, but if you're a viable faction, even if you're not in the majority, sooner or later, they're going to have to make a compromise with you now and then. A parliamentary system does that. In our country, you know, this either-or stuff, It, you know, you can keep both sides. I mean, like... We have to figure out a way to get health insurance to everyone. I don't need fucking insurance. I need care. Yeah. You know, these people that are always so worried about bureaucrats and do everything they can to save this enormous private bureaucracy that are the insurance racketeers. And who did the reform? Big Pharma, the insurance companies, and, and the AMA. Well, that's, you know, that's, they didn't reform anything. They rearranged the boondoggle and made sure that they kept, you know, they, everything still flow, all the, you know, it all flowed past them until a few drops got to some other people. So it, it, it improved a couple little things for some people. I mean, you know, very importantly for a few people, but all in all, getting health care is still a pain in the ass. You go in an office, you go in a doctor's office, they got 16 employees there and 12 of them are spending their whole day negotiating with insurance companies. It's ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous. That, how about cutting all that stuff out? And, you know, and I'm not going to be afraid of some government bureaucrats whose, whose job it is to see that I get whatever I need when I'm sick or whatever I need to not get sick. That's a better kind of bureaucrat as far as I'm concerned. And those are better jobs. And this shift to the right in this country, it does seem to be is so intense right now. I mean, not even well, just right I now. Mean, but... I mean, that, it, it always has been a pretty yeah. reactionary country. You know, I mean, you know, we put, you know, the great, the great Democratic icon, Woodrow Wilson, you know, look what he did to Eugene Debs. You know, I mean, it's, it's not good. Yeah, but even even just the idea of um, you know partially subsidized healthcare—it's not even single payer that we have, and yet right. there's all right. these hysterical right wingers who've been calling it communism and socialism. For well, the last I mean, of course, years. because they're just so, but they're just so fucking illiterate about anything. I mean, <laughs> I mean these these are the kind of people like the New York Times <laughs> who. who who contrast socialism and democracy as if there are two vying ideas, you know? Uh, no, socialism 
economic principle and democracy means everybody has their say. Considering that most people in the world are poor, if the world were actually demographic, there would be a lot more reallocation of, of wealth, wouldn't there? So if we were truly democratic, we would be socialist. But the New York Times wrote in 1990, 91, whatever it was, in the early 90s, now that democracy is won out over socialism in Nicaragua, and I'm reading that going like, you know, they're going to fucking, they get the New York Times in Sweden. This is embarrassing. Uh, I like this interview because it wasn't about me so much. It's, you know, the movie has all been, what do you think about you? Uh, so um, it's, it's nice to get to back to talking about things, which is what I'm doing. I don't know when this airs, but if anyone hears this on uh, my website, barrycrimmins.com, C-R-I-M-M-I-N-S, and um, also, people could buy tickets uh, there. A Twitter at Crimmins. I'm always plugging this stuff, and uh, you can also uh, uh, find me on Facebook at Barry Crimmins. So, and I try to keep everybody posted. And if people like what I have to say, they'll hear. You know, some of what I've had to say to you today will probably turn up in in these, these shows, but. Uh, I've been out after two years of doing, uh, the film, uh, it's time for me to get back to work because, uh, contrary to, uh, some rumors that have gone around, it's not, you know, independent, uh, documentaries are not exactly a bonanza <laughs> financially. <laughs> so I have to get back to work, but I've been out all fall doing smaller dates, you know, uh, you know, smaller rooms and, uh, to just get it together. And now as we go into 2016, I will be touring. And I'm quite happy with where my act's at. And uh, I hope people, I really hope people come out to see me because uh, the, the shows have been a lot of fun, you know, a lot of laughs. And, and of course, you know, I remain pertinent and, you know, sometimes uh, I'm not afraid to make a point that, the, that isn't attacked attached to uh, seltzer bottles and bicycle horns. <laughs> yeah, everybody go check out um, Barry's website, barrycrimmins.com. And I'm assuming you could buy tickets or find links to buy yeah, there, tickets from there. Yeah, there's links. I mean, again, okay. you, know, you find the stuff online, you're going to find the ticket links. pretty. And then I got stuff coming up in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Comedy Zone and in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina at the Dead Crow and a bunch of other stuff is developing in the early months of the year. And I'll be doing a big concert in uh, Lawrence, Kansas with the Lawrence Arts Center sometime in April and uh, probably two shows there because that's a great town and I uh, will probably have to do two. So, uh, awesome. yeah, everything's really good and I'm really happy with where the act is and it's fun to be out performing again. And, you know, again, I can't thank my buddy Bobcat enough for all he did because every time an independent filmmaker makes a movie uh he or she is putting their entire career on the line and he did that for me and it's quite a you know it's quite a political document because in it you know we go after a bunch of stuff but certainly uh catholic church u.s government corporations so on and so forth and yeah, well. <laughs> by telling my story so it's uh i mean he really put it all on the line and you know as i've been saying thank god it was nice to that kid when he walked into the club. <laughs> so uh uh you know that 
that's it. And it's called the No Hero Tour because I'm talking about heroes a bit because people have been calling me one and I have a little fun with that. So, um, uh, yeah, thanks. And you keep up your good work and stay after it and good luck to you. And, you know, thanks for trying, brother. That's all we can do. <laughs> you, you as well, Barry. I really appreciate it. And my best, your sister, too. Yes, um, I'll pass it on. And um, okay. it was great to talk to you. And uh, I hope you come to the West Coast, uh, preferably the Bay Area. We're working on that right now. Yeah. We're working on that right now. Where are you? I'm in, uh, I'm in Oakland. So, Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're looking at uh, stuff right there and north for the time being. So, uh, you know, up into the northwest. So Fantastic. There may be something happening relatively early in the new year if uh, my great new agent uh, can wangle something. So we're we're trying. We're trying to do everything. Trying to get, trying to get over to Ireland and England too. But uh, uh, I'll say something when it when it really happens. Um, but thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And my best to everybody. And you know, warmest uh, holiday greetings, whatever they are. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, and uh, peace, brother. Take care, man. Have a good Good one. Bye. Bye.